Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, it says, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass. He drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into this village opposite you, where as you enter in, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you. To the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Does God really plan the future? The answer is yes. God has a plan for the planet, for the nations, for communities and churches and individual lives. Does God plan your life? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes. What is it that you want, really, really want? Imagine, imagine, imagine you're back in high school and there is... An ice cream truck right across the street. And every day you can go across the street and you can have whatever flavor you want. And you can have it every single day. And you can have it every single day. What is it that you would pick? And there's so many things that you pick that are trivial or inconsequential. 
If you think about your life and what you want, most of us will pick health or most of us will pick physical strength to live a happy life. Some of us might pick true love for life. We might pick close personal relationships or meaningful work or the enjoyment of the comforts of life. Some of you would wisely pick a close relationship with God. Some of you might pick the chance to make a difference in the world. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, that familiar passage says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. The old King James translates the passage a little bit differently. It says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you An expected end. I love that phrase, that expression. To give you an expected end. God knows all along. God knew all along how it was going to end. In the earthly life of Jesus. The end of the ministry of Jesus isn't a surprise ending. God knows exactly how it's going to end for you and for me. One of the things I became re-aware of this week is that for some of you sitting here, for some of you listening close by, my voice will be the voice that will whisper in your ear at your bedside when you go to be with the Lord. It will be my voice that will hold your hand and pray with you. It will be my voice that will lead your family and friends as we mourn the last day of your life. One third of the Gospels in the Bible are devoted to what's been called the Great Week or the Passion Week. And since the earliest days of the church, the last week of the life of Jesus has been a solemn time of prayer and reflection on the sacrifice of our great shepherd king, the Lord Jesus. And in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44, it takes place on what has been traditionally called Palm Sunday. It is one of the most documented dates in all of human history. The date, April 6th, 32 AD. We begin, the Son of Man on schedule. Look what it says in verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead. Going up to Jerusalem. When he had said this refers back to what has previously taken place in the passage. In in an an event called the parable of the pounds. Or the parable of the minas in in verses 11 through 27. Some of you may remember this story. It was the story of a nobleman. A king. And he goes off to a far country to receive his kingdom. And the passage speaks of the reality that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king who has come from heaven to the earth. But this king isn't going to be able to establish his kingdom right away. The reality is that he is going to, in real life, live and die and come back to life. But he speaks of the story of the nobleman who goes away to receive his kingdom... Jesus is the king and he's taking his final journey. 
He walks the 17 miles to Jerusalem, the place where he will suffer, the place where he will die for sins, the place where he will rise from the dead. And this is the climax, the purpose of his life. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he's walking in a direction that all of history is going to be changed as a result of it. And as he walks in the direction of Jerusalem, he walks directly towards you, toward each and every one of you, toward each and every one of your lives, because his date with destiny is also your date with destiny. When Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, it's to fulfill the purpose of his life. And when Jesus draws near to you, it's to fulfill the purpose of your life, which is to know him and to love him and to walk with him. It really is important for you to ask yourself this question. When Jesus walks towards me, what does he see? What does he encounter? Devotion or distance? Relationship? Or rejection, obedience, or indifference. Remember, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He said earlier in the chapter in verse 10. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, we read, Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many, Jesus was compelled. He was driven. He was motivated to go to Jerusalem. He was already persuaded by the Father. He was already impressed by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And some scholars have seen in this magnificent obsession of Jesus a death wish. But it really wasn't a death wish at all. It was a wish for life. The entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was on the date that was prophesied literally hundreds of years earlier. The entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was a carefully planned and orchestrated event brought about by God through the testimony of the Holy Spirit. It was a beautiful spring day filled with sunshine, April 6th, A.D. 32, The city was already swollen with pilgrims coming to celebrate the Passover. And it was perhaps five times the normal population. Some of you are old enough to remember there was a time when a former pope came to the city of Denver and the front range to an event called World Youth Day. And the front range became a mecca and it swelled up two to three times the normal population. Imagine a city that swells five times the population. And as you would have approached the city of of Jerusalem, you would have heard the clamor of the crowds. You would have smelled the aroma of burnt lamb. Scholars estimate that some 250,000 lambs would have been slaughtered the week of the Passover. It would have been rivers of blood. 
And the event was prophesied in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, Daniel received this revelation, quote, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. When Daniel writes, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, Mashiach, Nagib, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troubles and times. Daniel wrote 70, sevens, literally Weeks or sevens in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a word shabuah. It's a period of seven days. We use a word very similar in our, in our own vocabulary. If you go to a donut place and you ask for a dozen donuts, how many donuts are you asking for? A twelve. A dozen is a unit of twelve. A shabuah was a unit of seven. In our culture and society, we typically think of sets of 10. We use words like decade, or we'll think of a set of 100. We'll call it a century. The Jewish people often thought in terms of heptads or sevens, seven days in a week, the seventh day being the day of rest, the seventh year, a Sabbath, the seventh Sabbath leading to what was called a year of Jubilee in Leviticus chapter 25. The only command in the scripture to rebuild Jerusalem took place in the second chapter of Nehemiah, where it says, In the month of Nisan, on the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes, another date that was established in history. As a matter of fact, the command to restore and build Jerusalem, some scholars place it at March 14th. 445 BC. If that's the case, three great purposes would need to be fulfilled. Number one, to finish the transgression, perhaps the transgression of rebellion and the return to the land. Number two, to make an end of sins. Jesus, the Messiah, the sin bearer, he will bear sin on the cross of of Calvary. And number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. When Jesus comes again the second time, he will bring about the next three things. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy, Kodesh, Kadashim, the anointing of the most holy, which, by the way, in the ancient world of the Jew, always spoke of the temple, and it could be a type or a picture of the temple in the millennial kingdom. The exact day of Messiah's presentation is given. Three distinct periods are given. A seven. And then seven times seven. That's 49. 62 sevens. That's 62 times seven is 434 years. Seven. And then a period of seven. The first period. Seven. Sevens. 49. 49 years go by. Jerusalem is rebuilt. A second period goes to the time when the Messiah is cut off. The city and the sanctuary are destroyed 
And then there's a remaining seven-year period that's been left unfulfilled. March 14th, 445 to April 6th, 32 AD, 173,880 days. The wall and the street are completed in 49 years. Fast forward in the ancient world to 396 BC. It marks the end of the ministry of Malachi, the closing of the Old Testament. Messiah predicted seven plus 62 equals 69 weeks or 483 years. Sir Robert Anderson computed the time. 173,880 days. Fast forward. April 6th, 32 AD, the 10th of Nisan, the day the Lamb is selected for the Passover. This is the day that we just read about. This is the day. This is the day. This is the day that was predicted by Daniel and orchestrated by God. This is the day that he sits on the donkey and the day that he proceeds into Jerusalem. The Jewish lunar calendar was based on a 360-day reckoning rather than a solar reckoning, which is based on a 365-day reckoning. Sir Robert Anderson actually received a knighthood from Queen Victoria from the work that he did on this particular passage, making adjustments, verifying him with the British Royal Observatory. Messiah will be killed on the 69th week. God was on time. God has prearranged life and he's prearranged your life. Down to the very last day. The reason why this is so important for each and every one of you, particularly when you come to the day of fiery trial, the day of difficulty, the day when you receive the news that you have cancer, the day you receive the news that your wife or your husband has left you, the day, the day that you wish that you wouldn't have to face. But in Luke chapter 19, verse 29, it says, And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, he sent out two of the disciples. Bethphage is on the outskirts of the city. When you're coming up to Jericho, you come up to this, this incredible hill. And then as you come to the top of the hill, you can see the temple mount right in front of you. Bethphage means the house of figs. Jesus would have arrived there on foot. Bethany was about two miles from the main city. Bethany was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And it would appear that Jesus would stay frequently at their home when, whenever he would have ministry. The New Testament doesn't seem to indicate Jesus had what we might call a permanent place of residence. In many ways, Jesus was a homeless person. Remember Matthew 8.20, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. 
The immediate family, with the exception of Jesus' mother, seemed to have rejected his, his earthly ministry. In verse 30, look what it says. Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? The colt or the foal has never been broken. No one has ever ridden on it. He says, loose it and bring it here in verse 31. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. It would seem that sometimes Jesus makes strange requests. But when Jesus asks for something to be done, there's rhyme and there's reason to what he is doing. Why would he request an unbroken donkey? And why in the world would he ask for someone like me or someone like you? What in the world would God want with it? And what in the world would the Lord want with you? In verse 32, look what it says. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he has said to them. But as they were lo loosing the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? <laughs> and they said, The Lord has need of him. Have you ever asked the question, why in the world would God want somebody like me? How in the world could God use someone like me? What in the world could Jesus do with a donkey? This week I reread a poem by G.K. Chesterton. He was a famous British writer. He wrote a, a poem called The Donkey. Based on this passage, he wrote, When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon a thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. What monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody of all four-footed things, the tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb, I keep my secrets still. Fools. For I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. Look at verse 35. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on, on the colt and they set Jesus upon him. This is a miracle. Those of you who have any familiarity with horses or donkeys, you know that a donkey that has never been ridden will not submit to be ridden unless they go through a process of breaking. Just like you. Going through a process of compliance. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? All of creation will submit to its creator, but there's one errant 
being that will sometimes choose to resist. And look at verse 37. It says, then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. They're crying. They're reiterating the praises of the prophecy that would take place. I know that if I were Jesus, I wouldn't have wanted to ride up on a donkey. I would have chosen a golden palomino just like Roy Rogers used to. You know, we all have our transportation of choice. You may have grown up in a world where, where you longed for a particular mode of transportation. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, why wouldn't you pick a Lamborghini or a, or a Ferrari? But remember, there are no Lamborghinis. But there are horses. If I couldn't find a golden Palomino, well, maybe I could pick a paint like Little Joe rode on Bonanza. Or a white stallion like the Lone Ranger. But you see, we superimpose our own ideas or our own wishes on the text. But in the ancient world, in the ancient world, a colt or a donkey was a noble animal. It was a beast of burden. It was an animal that was meant to carry the burdens of humanity. And even more significantly, it was used even in the ancient world of the Middle East to bring ambassadors. And when an ambassador was riding into a particular city and they rode on a donkey, it meant that they were ambassadors of peace. They came in peace. They were riding in order to initiate peace. They rode a colt to signify their peaceful intentions. And this is dramatically different from what most rulers would do. They would come to a city, both Vespasian and Titus. When they came to Jerusalem, they were riding a magnificent stallion. When Alexander the Great first entered Jerusalem, he was riding a magnificent stallion. And there's a prophetic reason for what Jesus is doing. He's the promised king. But he's coming in a manner that wasn't expected by the people. He's not coming at, at, with the head of a vast army to vanquish his enemies, to kill people or injure them or maim them. He's coming as the Savior, the one who will bring forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, and hope. And the cult, the cult was a symbol of peace. Just like it was in the wild, wild west. That there's a reason why they called the cult the peacemaker. The cult, by the way, was a symbol of service and a symbol of peace. And the foal of a cult never ridden was a symbol of sacred service. 
In the Jewish culture, an object was sacred, an object was holy, an object was set apart for a specific function or a specific use. There were animals that had never been ridden. There were objects that could not be used in any other way other than the sacred purpose for which they were established. That's found in Numbers chapter 10 verse 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 3. Jesus is taking every precaution prophetically to communicate his intentions but also his identity. In Luke chapter 19, verse 39, it says, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The religious leaders are annoyed. Why are they annoyed? Because they know the prophecy. They know that the crowd is treating Jesus of Nazareth as if he were a king. This is one of those times where I actually wish the Lord would have said, okay, okay, everyone, zip it. Can you imagine if silence, a hush, would have fell over Jerusalem and all of a sudden the very first rock concert mentioned in the Bible (laughs) begins to take place. They form lips and mouths and they begin to shout. People at odds with one another, they sometimes yell at each other. They lash out in anger. Winston Churchill and Lady Astor had a famous ongoing battle. At one point, Lady Astor told the Prime Minister, If you were my husband, I would give you arsenic. And classically, Churchill responds with, Madam, if I were your husband, I would drink it. It's hard to know what to say at any given moment. But Jesus knows exactly what to say. In verse 40, he answers, he says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would cry out. For those of you fortunate enough to get to go with me to Jerusalem, perhaps in October or April, you're going to discover that the whole place is surrounded by rocks. There's rocks everywhere. In ancient times as well as modern times, people would place stones on the top of tombs or ossuaries. Those are those limestone boxes that contain the bones of the dead. And the stones could mean the stones that are quite literally surrounding the temple mount. They might even be a reference to the temple itself which is made out of Jerusalem stone. As always, Jesus divides the crowd and he divides the city wherever Jesus goes. People don't always come together. Sometimes they fly apart. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, it says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess before my father 
who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And you're coming to Christ. Your loyalty to Christ, your identity as a Christian will sometimes cause people to distance themselves from you. And in verse 41 it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. In the passage, note what it does. It goes from the crowd's cheers to the Pharisees' jeers to the king's tears. I drove by Columbine High School Monday, April 19th. Invariably, I would drive by because our church, before we moved to this facility, was on Pierce. And almost every noon, I would drive down Pierce Avenue, go past Columbine, hang a left on bowls because I'm a creature of habit. And almost invariably on Mondays, I have beef lo mein at Mrs. Fong's. And I drove by Columbine High School, and I glanced over at the school. The children were gathered on the green. They were coming and going from the parking lot because it was noon. They were coming from class. They were going to class. On April 19th, I looked on the green, the place where one child the very next day would be shot and another would be injured and Rachel Scott would be shot in the leg and then she would be shot in the head at at point blank range. In just 24 hours, it would become a scene of death and trauma. In just a few short hours, hundreds of children would scream and weep and neighbors would cry and students would huddle into closets and classrooms and seasoned officers and highly trained emergency service workers would weep and sob openly. Our text is powerful. In the original language it reads, He burst into tears and he wept out loud. This is the kind of weeping when a parent learns that they've lost a child or a brother or a sister has lost a family member. Or a close friend. This is the kind of fundamental sob that takes place. When the person that you love has in fact died. This is the dark anguish of a broken heart. That no amount of dignity or propriety or emotional discipline can restrain. Or keep in check. This is the kind of sob that maybe some of you understand. It's the cry that comes when you have no other choice 
The Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came into his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus saw the rebellion and the rejection of a nation that refused its rightful king. He knew about their stubbornness. He knew about their blind self-righteousness. He knew that he would be dead in just a few short days. But he's not weeping for himself. He's going to rise from the dead. As a matter of fact, when Jesus makes his way to the cruel Roman cross, he says to the women standing by, he's carrying the burden. He drops it into the dirt. He himself stumbles and he falls into the dust. He gets up and he says, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. A famous hymn says, the Son of God in tears, the wondering angels see. Be thou astonished, O my soul. He shed those tears for thee. The anguish of a Savior coming upon a city that on the surface looks like it's going to accept him. But in fact will reject him. You see, when we reject God in our present circumstances, when we, we, when we reject the Lord, when we reject God's plan, when we reject God's purpose, we close the doors to the options and the possibilities that God always had for you. You see, God has called you and gifted you and equipped you But for some, they'll miss the day of visitation. They'll miss the opportunity to experience peace. In Luke chapter 19, verse 42, look what it says. If you had known, if you had known, even you, if you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. The implication being that you should have known, you should have known, you should have known. If I had known on April 19th what I knew about April 20th, if I knew on September 10th what would happen on September 11th. If the people of Jerusalem had only known on April 6th what would happen on April 11th. Perhaps things would have been different. But you aren't always given a peek into the future, are you? Sometimes you don't have the ability to see what's right in front of you. And here it is, April 13th. Here it is. And I guarantee you that there are people in this world who will wake up on April 14th and they would wish to God that they knew today. What's going to happen tomorrow? 
on Friday, April 11th, Jesus will be crucified. If you fast forward just a generation, in AD 69, the Roman legions will surround the city of Jerusalem. What happens when we reject a life of love? And what happens when we reject a life of forgiveness? And what happens if we refuse peace with God? And there are many people, there are many people, they'll talk to you. Well, one day, one day, one day, I'll make my peace with God. I have bad news for you. Human beings do not have the ability To make peace with God, only God can make peace with us. And God extends peace and forgiveness and hope in Jesus. Jesus is our peace. He is abiding peace, complete peace. Remember, peace isn't just the absence of conflict. Peace is The right relationship that we can have with God. If you knew about this peace, the Prince of Peace could provide perpetual peace. But within a generation, Vespasian and Titus will lay siege to the city. And they will lay siege to the city one day. Two days. And two days will become 20 days. And 20 days will become 50 days. And 50 days will become 100 days. And 100 days will become 143 days until they pound the city into submission. And 600,000 Jews will be killed. And almost as many will be taken captive. But we don't know. We're not given the information always. You see, the future holds two kinds of dates. Those that you can know and those that you cannot know. But just as surely as Jesus came the first time, he will come again. In James chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. We will spend a year there. We will buy. We will sell. We will make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or do that. So what is God's will? What is his will? Do you believe that God has a plan for your life? A plan that includes forgiveness. A plan that includes hope. A plan that includes redemption. As Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, he'll set in motion a series of of events that will quite literally change the world. And as Jesus comes to Jerusalem, make no mistake about it, he's walking, walking ever closer and then riding, riding ever closer to his eventual end did it ever occur to you 
that along with Jesus' walk and with every friendship and with every relationship, he comes and he walks with us and we go in a particular direction. Jesus comes to you. He comes and what does he see? Does he see a disciple rejoicing in devotion? Does he see someone walking in obedience? Does he see someone committed to kindness and love? Or does he weep? over the unused potential or even the inevitable rejection and judgment if you had only known if you had only known about some event or some circumstance you will wake up one day and you will say If I only knew yesterday what I knew today, things would be so totally different. But we know the truth about Jesus. We know the truth about his love. We know the truth about his sacrifice. We know about his life. We know about salvation. And guess what? No one, no one hearing this message can appear before God and say, I had no idea. I had no idea that you loved me and I had no idea that you cared about me and I had no idea that you orchestrated all of human events to take place in such a way so that I could experience forgiveness and redemption. I just didn't know. Why didn't you give me more proof? Why didn't you provide for me more compelling evidence? Why didn't you answer my objections? Why didn't you answer my questions? Why didn't you address my doubts? Why didn't you minister to my pain and appeal to alleviate my fears? But Jesus does all of those things. What would you do if someone came up to you and said, the Lord has need of you? Are you like a donkey going to resist, buck, or will you submit like any good donkey to his creator? Will you allow Jesus To take you in the direction that is going to be necessary in order for him to accomplish all that he desires to accomplish. The Lord has need of you. Will you carry Jesus a little closer to life's ultimate purpose and final destination? Then like G.K. Chesterton's donkey, you can say, fools! For I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. Don't be a stubborn donkey. And make sure that when you see the palm branches and you hear the cries of praise, remember it's for your master. He will take you in the direction that he needs to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
Lord, we know that many people will reflect this week on the events, the final days, the final moments, a cruel cross, a deep sadness, and then a glorious resurrection. A wonderful coming back to life. Lord, there's so much that we don't know, but yet, Lord, there's so much that we do know. That a real God has intervened in time and space. That real prophecies were fulfilled hundreds of years in advance. And that real promises were made. And real promises were kept. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be useful tools in your toolbox. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who will carry you to the next place. And that we would do it willingly and wonderfully in humility and joyfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.